Leviticus. Chapter number 23, and when you find it, would you stand in the honor of the reading of God's Word? We're going to read five verses of Scripture here from this very familiar passage that's come to us under the pen of the prophet Moses during the days of the exodus of Israel. Here it says in the ninth verse, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give to you, and reap its harvest, then you shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest to the priest. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord to be accepted on your behalf. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. You shall offer on that day when you wave the sheaf a male lamb of the first year without blemish as a burnt offering to the Lord. Its grain offering shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, an offering made by fire to the Lord for a sweet aroma, and a drink offering shall be of wine, one-fourth of a hen, not benny. You shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain. Notice this, this 14th verse. You shall, not, you shall eat neither bread nor parched grain nor fresh grain until the same day that you have brought an offering to your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwellings. And this offering was actually, the name of this particular offering was given in the 10th verse. It said the first fruits, first fruits. So we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians now, perhaps a little bit more familiar passage of Scripture. And I would actually, you know, I wanted to read the entire, not the entirety of this chapter, and I know you're going, you're, whew, because it's one of the longest in all the New Testament. However, I wanted to read the entirety, but I'm not going to for the sake of time. However, I will extract much of the doctrine that's contained in these first 23 verses somewhere here along the preaching of God's Word today. But we're going to just focus on two verses to conclude our Scripture reading, and I appreciate you standing in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Here it says, in the 20th verse, Paul the Apostle writing, he says, But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And these words are somewhat repeated in the 23rd verse, and this is going to conclude our Scripture reading here. It says, But each one in his own order, as he's relating the resurrection and the order of the resurrections, he says, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. And if you were here last week and as, I, as we went into Passion Week, I found myself in my own spiritual preparation, my attention was drawn to Passover and the topology that was contained in the, in the ancient feast of Israel of Passover. And today, my attention and my personal uh, study has been drawn to the first fruits, and I want you to see that title there, Christ the First Fruits. And so I want to ask you today for the Holy Spirit, as it's already been spoken, to illuminate this context for us today, this concept. We believe Christ is risen. What does that mean? He is the first fruits. He is the first fruits. And so we're going to pray. Father of heaven, we love you, and I'm so grateful for this privileged moment. I feel greatly humbled to be here and totally inadequate. Father, I don't think that preparation could be sufficient enough to feel um, 
that, that I would be adequately prepared to speak to such a host on this very special day, perhaps even day above all other days, if there is such one God. But Father, I humble myself amongst the people to trust in what we call a sacred anointing, that God, as the Apostle Peter would write, you could make me as the oracles of God. I know that for, perhaps to the unchurched, the language and the, and the speech that I use is somewhat foreign to them at times. But God, I'm not going to rest and, and, and base the entirety of my ability to reach them upon us understanding a similar vocabulary. But I'm going to trust that the same Holy Spirit that drew me to Christ when I was eight years of age, God, that that same Holy Spirit can open the heart of someone under the sound of my voice today. And that even through, Father God, the context and the preaching that goes forth today, God, the church would be edified and the sinner could be reclaimed and we would give you all praise. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. Now, if you have brought an actual B-I-B-L-E with pages and a cover and sit in your lap in front of you, or if it's automated on your phone or your iPad, that's fine as long as you're not texting or on Facebook while I'm preaching. But at the same time, if, you're, if you can kind of keep it, um, you know, close to 1 Corinthians 15, because we'll kind of allude to that kind of in bits and pieces. And there are a few other verses of Scripture that those wonderful people that are in the booth are going to help me with today, because I want you to be able to read these for just a few moments. And the, the, the pastor that stands in front of you, I kind of self-identify my, myself as a doctrinal preacher, and what I mean by that is... You know, I'm moved by information. Information doesn't necessarily stimulate a lot of people. Some people kind of find it a little bit boring. Some people are looking for some type of emotional response. But I don't know. When I am given adequate information and I process that information, I gain the greatest stimulus in my heart. I find my faith leaping and growing within my spirit. No greater place and no greater time. And that's my prayer today. And so in this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15... The Apostle Paul does a little bit of an argument uh, along the way in the context of whether or not Jesus is actually risen or not. Perhaps a doctrine that was held by some that had penetrated or uh, into the uh, Corinthian church. And, and so Paul is, is, is writing in response to this. And he's, uh, he's, there's some reproof as well as instruction that goes forth. Now one of the things that I noticed as I read this passage again this past week multiple times is that Paul gives a record of those that have actually visibly seen Jesus after his resurrection. An actual uh, first-hand eyewitness account. And he actually calls some of these men and, uh, by name. And, and he says that he was seen by um, Cephas first. And then he said that he was seen by twelve. Now we know he was seen by the women that had come to the tomb that day with spices. You know, Mary Magdalene had met him after she had heard the announcement by the angel that Christ was not there but he was risen and you remember the account that the gospel narrative gives us that when Christ actually visibly appeared to her she supposed that he was the gardener and she requested at that moment she still believed that he was dead and that they had taken his body and had hid it someplace and she you know she couldn't have carried the body away but she said if you'll just tell me Mr. Gardener where he's at I'll get some strong guys and we'll go because his body's precious to us and it was there that he turned around and said Mary and when he said Mary her heart melted because there he was the one that she had saw die on the cross three days earlier was standing before her 
come on, as the resurrected son of the living God. And so her narrative is, is kind of woven in here equally as well. Though Paul doesn't mention it, we know that it is, it is certainly a part of it because his references to those that have touched him and seen him, she's most likely is a part of this group that he called the 500. Probably, most assuredly, she would have been one of those 500 disciples that would have actually visibly seen Jesus after his resurrection. He said he was seen by James and by all the apostles. And then Paul actually just threw himself in there. Kind of, I'm sure he felt a little bit awkward because he was not there under those uh, original circumstances with those original apostles. But along, as Jojo mentioned, the Damascus Road. It was there that the light of heaven shone through the person of Christ. And Paul was blinded and came to the realization that he was kicking against the goads by his own words he said uh, that Jesus said you're kicking against the go the goads because I am the resurrected Christ and so Paul is drawing attention to this that there are men and women that are alive today at the time that his um, secretary is pinning the words that he is speaking that that there are men and women alive today that actually have the testimony that they saw him with their own eyes they handled him with their own hands but if I can say this to you today guess what church family seeing is not always believing because in your mind you may have thought man if I could just see then I would believe well I dare to uh, argue with that point for just a moment because I'm going to show you here that when these disciples and apostles that we marvel at when they first got news or when they were even first not only got and received the news but when they first laid eyes on him they did not necessarily believe. Luke 24 says that when he had thus spoken, this is after his resurrection, and he said, look, here's my hands and my feet. Look at what the 41st verse up here says in this passage. It says, they did not believe for joy, and they marveled that they were so overwhelmed by that moment that they just, they, they, they didn't know. Is this real? Am I in a dream? Is this a vision? I, I don't know. They didn't know whether they were in a vision or a dream or whether or not this was some type. Well, actually, the, the, the Scripture tells us that they really thought he was a spirit. They, because a spirit can have the form of a body. And so in the 37th verse of that same chapter, it says they were terrified and frightened because they supposed that, that, he had, that they had seen a spirit. And so I want to say that to you today because I think that helps us because many of times we think that our faith needs the stimulus of sight. But let me tell you, faith does not need the stimulus of sight. You can close your eyes. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so let me tell you real quickly, there was something that was hindering their ability to believe, even the physical evidence that was in front of them, even the tangible, behold my hands and feet, it is I, a spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see that I have, Jesus said. And so what was that? Well, John would later give us the, 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 <clears throat> the truth as it relates to why they would see and yet not believe. And I want to post that here, John chapter 20, verse 9. It says, for as of yet, they did not know the Scripture. They didn't know the Scripture that he must rise again from the dead. And so when they're confronted with a resurrected Savior standing in front of them with scar still on his brow, a, a, a scar on his side, and gaping wounds still in his hands and in his feet, that they are frightened and think it's a spirit because they have not been convinced by the Word of God that Jesus would be resurrected. 
And you know, and actually it was that point that caused Jesus to actually reprove. You would think that he wouldn't have to reprove his disciples following his resurrection. But you know, the Bible says in Mark's gospel that he rebuked them for their unbelief and their hardness of heart. The Bible also says that to those that walked with him on the Emmaus road, he said to them, look what he said after his resurrection. He said, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. If time would have allowed us, we would have went farther into Luke's gospel and Luke's narrative in the 24th chapter because Jesus knew in order for them to believe, it wouldn't be the stimulus of sight. So the Bible says that he opened their understanding. See, there's a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit that can illuminate and can quicken and reveal the Word of God to you where things that were previously hidden are now disclosed. Things that look like they had a cover or veil over them. Super, it's the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. I don't understand it. Two people can be in the same place at the same time, seeing and hearing the same report, and one of them, their heart is open to what's being shared, and the other is blinded. Because one, the Holy Spirit is illuminating the thoughts and the mind of God to that person, and the other person, the hardness of their heart has not been lifted. So I want you to know today that Paul makes an argument. <coughs> Paul makes an argument in that passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 concerning the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he creates for us a basis for that particular argument. And here's what it is. It's in the third verse. I think we're going to post those. It says, I delivered to you, first of all, <coughs> that which I that I received, that Christ died for our sins. Now, it would all change if it wasn't for those last four words right there at the end but he said Christ died for our sins according to what according to the scriptures that everything could hinge upon that you may not know that but I hope that you're going to know that here in just a few moments today everything could hinge upon that and then read the fourth verse with me he said and that he was buried how many believe he was buried today I believe that he was it wasn't even his own tomb Jesus didn't buy or purchase or he he had the resources he had resources that had been given to him. He could have went out and purchased his own tomb. But you know why he didn't? Because he didn't need it that long. For everybody that's ever bought something and took it back to Walmart because you only used it for a short period of time, then that's your justification. Jesus didn't purchase one because he wasn't going to need it very long, so he just borrowed it from a man called Joseph of Arimathea. And I believe that he was buried, and I believe that Pilate authorized the Roman centurion to seal the tomb so that it would not be opened by anybody, not by another opposing army, not by the disciples, not by the Sanhedrin. Nobody had the uh, authority to open that because it had been sealed by the signet ring of Rome. But let me tell you, God didn't ask Pilate if he could open that tomb. And so he was buried, but look at this, and he rose again the third day according to what? You've got to get that down. What's he talking about? When he's referencing the scriptures. And you have to understand this is written from a Jew, written by a Jew who was raised in, in, in first century Judaism. And, and, and he shared the same expression of what the scriptures was uh, as Jesus himself. Had we read farther in Luke's gospel, chapter 24, Jesus called the scriptures. Here's what he called it. The law, the prophets, and the psalms or the writings. You and I know it as the 39 Old Testament uh, books, uh, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament. To the Jew, it was 24 books. Some of those have been consolidated. It was the same number. Some were just consolidated two in one. But let me just say this to, to you today. There is a narrative that Paul 
after his revelation was given to him. He said, I received this of the Lord. There was an illumination in his heart and life as well that Christ, death, burial, and resurrection had been prophesied for thousands of years. <coughs> that, that, that the prophets of old had given them just a little glimpse into that fateful day in which Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. I would, want to show, I would like to show a couple of those to you today, and I'm so sorry, but I've just struggled all week. I don't know if it's the pollen or Satan. <coughs> but in Psalm chapter number 16, when you think of the Psalms, you think of David. You think of hundreds and hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. And the psalmist David gives us this passage here in Psalm 16 and 10. He says, for that will not leave my soul in hell. So the psalmist David, the sweet poetic psalmist who worshipped God openly and the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would write songs that would still be sung by the Jews to this very day. In the midst of their psalms that they sing in adoration to God, there is a prophecy. There is a prophecy that God said, I will not leave the soul of my son in Sheol or hell, nor will he will allow the Holy One to see corruption. He also said in Psalm 49 and 15, and the reason why these are important because the Apostle Paul probably had these very verses in mind. The Apostle Paul probably had these very verses in mind when he said that Christ died according to the Scriptures and he was raised again according to what? According to the Scriptures. Not according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They had not even been penned as of yet. He's referencing back to these Psalms or the law or the prophets. And so he says here, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall receive me. Who's he talking about? But he's talking about the promised Christ, the one who would come. Thank God for that today. Amen. Once again, the prophet Hosea gives us just a little glimpse into it here today. It says, come and let us return unto the Lord. I feel the Holy Spirit speaking to somebody here today. Those very same words, God is saying to you, come, it's time to return unto the Lord. He said here, for he hath torn and he will heal us. He has smitten and he will bind us up. After two days, he's going to revive us. And in the third day, I don't know about you, that's why we're here today. We're here to celebrate a third day. Right, a third day. In the third day, he's going to raise us up and we're going to live in his sight. Not only was he speaking about Jesus, but he's also speaking about all of us who will be in Christ Jesus. And so Paul the Apostle hurt certainly here as he's writing or as he's dictating to his secretary and saying that Christ died and was raised again to the Scriptures according to the Scriptures. Certainly, without exception, he had these verses in mind. But I also believe that there was something else in his heart. I believe there was something else that Paul discovered because the writer of the book of Hebrews said that in the Old Covenant, in the Old Scriptures, there was something called types and shadows. And many of us don't really know what types and shadows are, but what it's saying is that under that Old Covenant, in those 39 Old Testament books, you know what it is? There's a picture. How many of you have a, a cell phone? And on your cell phone, you got multiple pictures, pictures of your family, pictures of vacations and trips that you've been at or weddings and things of that nature. Well, the Old Testament gives us a picture gives us a picture of the coming of Christ. It foreshadowed, it anticipated. Yes, the Scripture could be very directive, but also beyond the Scriptures, such as Psalms and such as Hosea, God would use the natural examples of ancient Israel, and it would be a snapshot so that all men everywhere would be able to look back and say, you know what? And it, 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 it would take, it, it behoove us to contemplate that only one man could fulfill every, every type and become the anti-type of those, of those prophecies that were contained in the Scriptures. Let me give you an example. You say, Pastor, I don't understand. 
what you're meaning. Well, let me give you an example. <coughs> How many remember about Noah and the ark? Did you know that the Bible says that, that Noah's ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat? Is everybody familiar with that? And that it came to rest on the 17th day of the seventh month. And you say, well, that's not the day that Jesus was resurrected because he was resurrected on the 17th day of the first month. But if you'll put that together, it was during the Exodus that God said, take this seventh month and move it and make it the first month. And so, actually, the day that the ark came to rest on a reborn earth, thousands of years later, is the very same day. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? That Christ stepped out of this grave. Come on, reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go a little bit farther. Under the law, remember the law had a testimony too. There was the cleansing of the leper. The cleansing of the leper involved the killing of two, well, the killing of one bird, but involves two turtle doves. One would be slain, and his blood would fall in running water, moving water. But the other, the priest would take, and he would lift, and he would toss into heaven, and it would fly away into heaven. And it foreshadowed that when the earth opened up and let Christ out, come on, somebody, and that he is able to ascend unto his heavenly Father. Perhaps none greater than Aaron's rod or staff. Remember what, during the time where there was a group of men and women that were rebelling against the authority of Moses and Aaron, and so Moses said, take one staff or one rod from every one of the tribes of Israel and lay them up in the, tab in the tabernacle in the most holy place before the Ark of the Covenant. And the very next day, in the very next day, they went in and all those pieces of wood, dead when they went in, dead when they came out, except for one. And overnight, supernaturally, for no eye to behold, the supernatural power of God took a lifeless rod and caused it to flower and to bud and to bring forth fruit. And it validated Aaron's priestly authority. Well, let's go a little bit. Fact. Pastor, I need greater convincing. I'm trying to do what Paul tried to do to the listening ear of the Corinthians when he attempted to show them that Christ was dead, buried, and raised again according to the Scriptures. I don't know if you've ever sat with your children, small children, and you've read to them children's stories out of the Bible. And always one of the most uh, uh, fun stories to share with your children is Jonah and the whale, or the great fish. All the little children know about Jonah. How that the prophet rebelled against God, was cast into the sea, and God had prepared a great fish, and he swallowed up Jonah. And you read the narrative, Jonah feels like he's taken to the depths of hell, and so would you if you were inside a fish's belly for th how long? For three days. For one day, two days, and on the third day, the fish opened up and spit the prophet out because Jesus Christ would come later and he would say, as Jonah was in the bed, the belly of the fish for three days, so shall the Son of Man. I feel my preacher about to come on right now. So shall the Son of Man come on, be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Man, it's a powerful picture a powerful picture to us that Christ died, he was buried, and he was raised again. According to what? According to the scriptures. But obvious to some, but obscure to others, is Paul's use of a term that he described Christ and his resurrection. He said in our text in 1 Corinthians 15 that he had become the first fruits. Now you and I, we can read that and we can glean over it so quickly. But in the heart of the apostle, Paul was linking the resurrection of Jesus to a very important event 
that it happened during the days of the Exodus and had been given as a perpetual commandment to every generation of Jewish believers from that day forward, that every year, if you study the Old Testament, and I'm not a, I'm not a, uh, uh, any wise or any capacity would be an authority on it. I've just studied enough to be adequate, hopefully to be able to communicate this to, as a pastor. But the children of Israel celebrated seven annual feasts. Now you think about what we call holidays, that they were originally holy days. And Israel was given seven distinct days. Sometimes it was an individual day. Sometimes it encompassed an entire week. One particular week, three passed in one week. And that's where we're at in this particular narrative. And these were moments. I may believe God expected Israel to remember. Remembers a very, remembrance is a very important thing. Matter of fact, the apostle Peter would say, stir up your pure minds. But, I mean, I'm telling you, the world is busy enough. At times, you got to just stop and say, you know what, I'm going to remember him today. I'm going to pause, and in my mind, I'm going to contemplate all that I know and I can meditate on in remembering Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Israel had been given instruction to keep these seven feasts. I noted last week that Christ died on perhaps the most familiar of all the feasts, and that was Passover. Passover was most familiar to us because it was the night that Israel was brought out of Egyptian bondage. I did my very best to relate to you how that they took the blood of a bullock and they, or excuse me, the blood of a lamb and they placed it upon the lintel and the doorpost and that the death angels. Does anybody remember that message here today? Christ was our Passover. When that feast commenced on the 14th day of the month, the Bible says that the narrative, and we read that in Leviticus chapter number 23, the very next day would be the commencement of what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. All of Israel had to remove leaven. It, was, it would signify sin, and that Israel was uh, would be moving uh, leaven out of their houses for an entirety of the week. And then the Bible says that the day following, on the 16th or the 17th day of the month, uh, that from e which again, let me note that Israel numbered their days from evening to evening, that Moses would give instruction to what we would call the Feast of First Fruits. And on that particular day, it was a very formal priestly procession that would take place. And the word of God that we read in Leviticus was this, is that before Israel, how many of you know Israel was an agricultural people? They didn't have a Walmart, harps, or cash savers. And so they were agricultural people, and they were dependent upon the fruit of the land coming right at the right time. And God did not necessarily want his people having to go barter with the Egyptians or go barter with the Syrians to, to provide. God said when he brought Israel into the land, he said, this is not a land like you're coming out of, that you can dig little trenches and water your garden. He said, it's a land you got to be dependent upon me. God said, I'll water your land, and I'll bring forth your produce. But in that narrative in, in Leviticus, God said, before I'm going to bless the fullness of your harvest, before you're going to celebrate your barley harvest and your wheat harvest, before you're going to bring in the pomegranate, before you're going to bring in the olive, before you're going to bring in anything in your celebration that God has abundantly provided for you, there's going to be a special day. And you're going to harvest one particular small field. And you're going to bring what he called the first fruits of harvest, the very first thing, before a sickle could go in anybody field before anybody could say this is new this year you know this is the not the old corn this is the new corn of the land before anybody could say this is the first harvest and we're celebrating that formal procession had to take place 
and originally the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. I want to draw your, can I draw your attention to that for just a moment today? Because you say, Pastor, is that, is that really that important? I'm telling you, it's that important. It's that important because if you catch this, I'm telling you, it will, it will give you a stroke by the, by, the, by the painter, the Holy Spirit. It will be like a stroke, just putting that, that little image that you need to make that picture come just a little bit more clear so that you can understand that Christ died, he was buried, and he rose again from the grave according to the Scriptures. Alfred Edersheim, the famed Jewish uh, historian, would give us his account in the book that's entitled The Temple and His Services, written in the late 1800s. And he's known throughout the, theo- uh, the, the, the theological camps as uh, perhaps the, the most trusted reference point to the temple of the first century, the time of Jesus. And he gives us a little glimpse in what that procession was like. And here's what's noted, what I've extracted from his book, to just read this. So now you say, Pastor, I'm really not into this. I was more into like Easter eggs and, 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 and bunnies and, and, that, and chocolate, and I didn't get chocolate here today. Well, I'm sorry, but I'm telling you, this is far better. This is far better than what you, you could get. Uh, uh, who, who makes the little chocolate-covered egg, Canterbury, isn't that it? This is far better. They're not Cadbury. They're not very good in the first place. Listen, here's what, the, here's what the narrative says, is that, the, that there would be uh, three of, of the priesthood that would be chosen, a special group of men that would be chosen, and they would cross what's known as the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley is the great rift that sell, se- separates um, Mount Zion, where the temple would have been located, and the Mount of Olives. And it's a familiar uh, valley to the people of Israel, and they would actually have to cross it because up opposite the Temple Mount, uh, the Mount of Olives, in a small area known as the Ashes Valley, would be a small open field where barley grew. Barley was the poor man's uh, food and in that sense, it was, but it was the first that would ripen. And so uh, this was sown 70 days earlier in anticipation during the latter portion of the winter months. And according to the, uh, the traditions of the Jews, the crop would have to grow naturally. Now, it would be sown by the priesthood, but it would have to grow naturally. They could not artificially water it or fertilize it. They had to just leave it entirely alone. And so on the sundown of the 15th day of the month, at the commencement of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, this three-man delegation from the Sanhedrin would make their way out of Jerusalem, down the valley, and up on the edge of the Mount of Olives to the Ashes Valley, and there they would go to harvest these specially chosen sheaves or sheaves, excuse me, and they would, they would harvest them, bind them together, and they would bring them back into the temple courtyard area. And from there, they would thresh it. And it was there that they, after it was threshed that some of it would be parched or winnowed in the wind to remove the shaft. And then from there, some of it was milled into very fine flour. And that was a very uh, intricate process that sometimes they would sift it up to 12 times to make very, very fine flour. And so that night would pass, and the very next day, the next day, this day of the 16th to the 17th day of the month, on the morning of the following day, the 16th day of the month, an omer of the flour was mixed with oil. It was sprinkled with frankincense. And it was then patted out, uh, and it was given to the priest. And the priest then took it, and he sent some to the brazen altar where it was offered as a sacrifice to God. But they took the rest of it, and they went into the, they took the, the first fruits of the, that sheaf, and they went into the holy place. And it was there that the priest would raise his hands, and it was there.
declared that he would give a wave offering celebrating the first fruits. Thanking God that the first fruits had now been harvested. And as they thank God for the, for the first fruits, what they were doing is they were recognizing that it was a pledge or it was a guarantee that the remainder of the harvest would be realized in the days ahead. Now, you say, Pastor, what's the prophetic significance of that or the prophetic parallel? Well, let's try to put the days together and see if this bears a witness in your spirit. I don't know, but it bore a witness in my spirit because when Paul said Christ is the first fruits, that means that he is not just the only one that's going to be raised from the dead. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? You say, how important is that? I'm going to tell you that is of, of, of great importance to every person of the sound of my voice here today. Because the last I looked, we were all flesh. And I don't care how old you can live, you might make it all the way to 99 like Billy Graham. But you're going to eventually pillow your head in death. But when you recognize that the one that was resurrected on that Easter Sunday many, many long years ago was the first fruits of the resurrection. Oh, what joy. Come on, that gets worked in our hearts. The prophetic parallel is this. On the day or the evening that the priests made their way to the field and then to return to Jerusalem, it's sure that God sent an angel to descend. So think about that. As the priest is coming down, uh, making his way Mount, Mount Zion to cross the Kidron Valley, God's got an angel descending through the atmosphere, through the heavenlies, uh, making his way to that borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And on the morrow, the very next day, when the priest would enter the holy place and wave the sheaf before the Lord, celebrating the first offering, on that same day, early that morning, another priest arose, and this priest stepped out. He didn't step in. He stepped out. He stepped out of that borrowed tomb to not present a sheaf, but to present the whole loaf as a celebration and as a point of reference that God is God of both the dead and the living and he presented himself to God the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead and so when Paul is writing to the Corinthians and he says Christ has become our first fruits he's saying I want you to know that Jesus died and that he was buried and just like the Sanhedrin have celebrated by waving the sheaf of the first fruits in the temple, I want you to know that our priest came out and presented himself uh, as a, come on somebody, as, as a living sacrifice unto God. Hallelujah today. I don't know about you, but I'm telling you, that stirs my heart. That just adds a little stroke to the picture that when I think about this in my mind, I think glory to God. I'm not basing all of my faith today on the entirety of one person's eyewitness narrative. But I'm basing my faith upon a prophetic picture that stood the test of time for thousands of years. I can say to you today that Jesus Christ died and he was buried and he's raised again according according to the scripture, according to the holy writ prophesied by holy men of God, moved by the Holy Ghost. And so in that narrative, before I close today, i got to just drop this down. I didn't come to preach. I didn't know if I'd be able to, but I just felt it drop down in my spirit, so I'm going to go ahead. I know this is the modern church, and, and I'm supposed to be up here with a little round table and a cup of coffee, and i got to just give you a little dialogue, but you're in the wrong house today because I came to tell you today there's something in my spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. I'm alive unto God, and i got a word for you today. He's risen from the dead, not just because Mary 
Mary saw him, not just because John went into the tomb and said he saw and believed, not just because he appeared to 500 men and women following his resurrection, but I believe that he died, was buried, and he's raised again because God gave me a prophetic picture that stood the test of time for 6,000 years. You say, Pastor, why is that so important? Because the heavens will one day pass and the earth will be folded up like a blanket. But Isaiah said the word of the Lord will endure forever. And you know what? That unbelieving uh, professor that's going to try to convince your sons and daughters when you send them to a secular college that it's just a fairy tale. It's just a fairy tale. You can have them be emboldened by the Spirit of God and say, let God be true and let every man be found a liar. Because I want you to know when that person is dead and buried, Jesus Christ will still be alive to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul gives us it. And I just feel, I just got to close with this. Paul, in this narrative in 1 Corinthians, I just feel like it need to be said today. 1 Corinthians 15, he said, that he gives us a little, what's called a fourfold defense to the argument. You know, some do not believe. To this very day, some do not believe. They see the evidence, they hear the testimony, and their hearts are hardened. And Paul is writing to contradict, I'm going to tell you, it'll creep into the church. You know, there are people that are worshiping in a building with a cross and a steeple that do not believe that Jesus is resurrected. While they wear a WWJD bracelet and got a cross on their necklace, and their heart is empty of faith in God. I'm telling you, church family, Paul said this. We'll look at it. He said in verse 14, if you, if you don't mind, you can just look at it. I'll close and get you out of here, but in a moment of time, it says, if Christ is not risen... He said, our preaching is vain or empty. Vain in the King James and empty in the New King James. But let me say this to you. Let me reverse that. Christ's resurrection empowers and validates my preaching. I'm emboldened today to stand in front of you because I believe that that tomb is empty today. Can I say this? I believe in preaching. Preaching is a unique gift of God. God uses men and their uh, inabilities coupled with his ability to be able to convey the most important of all messages. I believe it combines oratorical ability. It combines doctrine or teaching, charisma, and excitement. I'm sorry, but I wouldn't go to a church where the preacher can't get excited. I'm just sorry. I know I don't have to run in here every Sunday, but I'm telling you, when I think about what God did in the person of Christ... I come to church sometimes and say, God, I don't want my voice to get so high today. I can't help it. But when I think about Jesus, I'm telling you, there's something inside of me that's a celebration within my heart. By preaching, hearts and minds are strangely warm to the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would like to say it to you today. Preaching can be more descriptive than a book, and it can be more vivid than a movie. I want you to know today, I believe in cantatas, I believe in plays, and I believe in the silver screen. But I want you to know in my heart of hearts, I believe they all dim in comparison to when a man or a woman of God with a sacred anointing upon their head stands behind what we call a sacred desk and brings us to a sacred text and tells us about the most sacred of moments of when Jesus Christ came out of the grave. And I believe that when you hear that, something inside of your heart burns like the men walking with him along the Emmaus 
road. The scriptures are being written on the fleshly tablet of your heart. And with blinded eyes you can still see. And with deaf ears you can still hear. Because the word of Almighty God is preached by a man or a woman of God. Hallelujah. Because of his resurrection, our preaching is relevant. Our preaching is inspiring. Our preaching is uplifting and it is faith building. I know you say, Pastor, now that you're going a little far with this one. But because the tomb is empty, my preaching is not. Number two today, if Christ is not risen, Paul said in verse number 14 and repeats it in verse number 17. He said, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is vain or futile. Your faith is vain if Christ is not risen. Can I say this? What little bit I do know about God, what little bit that I know about God, and what little bit that I've, uh, I understand the Scriptures on, it is validated by the singular moment in time right there. Everything that you know about Jesus Christ is validated by His resurrection. The, the, you say, well, no, the miracles validate. No, 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 no. There were miracles long before Jesus came up out of that grave, right? I'm telling you, God could always perform miracles but it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that validates what we believe here today. I love what the Apostle Peter said. He said, you have been begotten again unto God through a lively hope. How I mean, you know I have a lively hope today? Come on, God is not dead and neither is my faith. Come on, I have a living faith and no man can take it from me. I'm telling you, you can torture men. Isn't it, uh, Dr. Brassfield, that Polycarp, the ancient man of God that was burned at the stake for his testimony of God at 86 years of age, said he's done me nothing but good all these years. How can I curse him here at the end? Uh, and I know that's not exactly the way he said it, but he simply said, it doesn't matter with the flames take my flesh off of my bones. He said, but you can't take the faith out of my heart because that tomb is empty. I've got a living faith in God today. And you can have a living faith in God. You can live life with hope and with faith. My faith is alive, and I'm alive because he's alive. Number three, very quickly, if Christ is not risen, verse 17, Paul says, if Christ is not risen, not only is your faith futile or in vain, but you're still in your sins if Christ is not risen. Did you hear that today? I don't care how sanctified you think you are. Not only if, if Christ is not risen, then you're still identified as a sinner in the eyes of God, and you're also under the bondage and the obligation to sin. Let me just see if I can share this with you. If Christ is not risen, then I can never truly be free from the bondage of sin. That's in layman's terms. I will always be aware of my sin, but I'll never be able to escape their condemnation and their, and their hold over me. If Christ is not risen, I will always be aware that I'm a sinner by nature and a sinner by action. But I'll never be able to escape from its condemnation and also its ability to dominate and control me. But I came along as a preacher of good news today. Oh, but because death no longer has a hold on Jesus. Can I say this to you today? Then sin no longer has a hold over you. Let me just say that. I don't think you caught that. Did you know that Jesus broke free from death? Death tried to hold him back. 
shackles and demons and devils and traditions tried to hold him back but death could not hold him back and let me tell you addictions can't hold you back I don't care how strong the addiction to crystal meth was it's not stronger than the power that brought Jesus Christ out of the grave and that same spirit that now raised Christ from the dead dwells inside of you that's why we're a doctrinal church we believe that sin no longer has are you hearing me today it does not have a stronghold over you but you can dominate it by the glory of God pastor where's the basis of that belief to tell me that if I used to be a fornicator and an adulterator I used to lust for other men's wives I used to be bound by alcohol and addictions and you're telling me I can be free where is the point of reference that I can be free come on when that grave come on when he overcame the grave you can overcome every stronghold of sin in your life you can and don't let the devil and don't let religion and don't let the carnal mind tell you because that empty tomb tells you you can be free if Christ has set you free Come on, you're going to be free indeed. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Because he lives, I'm alive to God, and I'm going to serve God. I'm going to serve God. And lastly today, lastly today, if Christ is not risen, if Christ, how many of you believe Christ is risen? But if he is not, that, let's put that 18th and 19th verse up there if we can. Paul said, then those, if Christ is not risen, than those that have fallen asleep or have died in Christ have perished. And as a result, the living, look what he said, as a result of those that are yet alive, he said, then we are of all men most miserable or most pitiful. If Christ is not risen, can I say it this way? This fleeting life then is vain. Solomon, the writer of Ecclesiastes, said it's all vanity and vexation of spirit. And if Christ is not risen, then it's true, and we have to echo those words to you. If Christ is not risen, this fleeting life is vain and futile. There's no hope for tomorrow. Today we eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But let me tell you today, but because he lives, he's become the first fruits of the resurrection. Does that make sense to you today as I welcome, it's Aaron back on the stage with me today as I welcome Aaron. Because Christ is risen, I now have a hope in God that not only does sin no longer have control over me, but death no longer has a hold over me. That was bound to the song that we read earlier or that we sung earlier concerning death, where is thy victory? O grave, where is thy sting? Let me tell you today, I know it sounds kind of morbid, but we're all going to face death one day. Unless we are alive at the return of Christ, Every man, boy, and girl, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter your socioeconomic status. Don't matter whether you're educated or uneducated, black or white, rich or poor, matters not. There's one thing. However, Christ is risen, and he's become the first fruits. Did you know, church family, with his resurrection is the promise, like the first fruit offering of old, it was a pledge that there was a harvest that would come later. Did you know we will bury our loved ones? And you've buried your loved ones. And I've wept with you and I've asked you to weep with me when I've been at the graveside of my family and friends. But when we bury our loved ones who have faith in Christ and when the coffin is closed and the grave is sealed 
and the mourners have gone home. I know. I know. Do you know that today? I know in my spirit today. I know in my heart that because he's the first fruits, there's going to come a day when the grave can't hold them down either. And they too, all who have faith in, in Christ, are going to rise to meet him. And church family, that's the hope and that's the promise that Jesus Christ is the first fruits, the first begotten of the dead. And on this Easter Sunday, I don't know where you're going to go at from here. I didn't provide a meal for you today, so you got to go find your own. I didn't put together an Easter egg hunt, and most of you aren't coming back to my house. So I don't know where you're going today. But herein lies the truth of the equation, and also, lastly, the greatest question that is applicable to all. The truth is this. Like ancient Israel, the ancient harvest, the first fruits, was first gathered, and then came the promise of a subsequent harvest. Paul said in that 23rd verse, he said, here's the order. Christ the first fruits, and afterward those that are Christ that is coming. Did you know the people that have that peace in their hearts are the people that live, they live life totally different? We do. When we know that this life is not the end, I don't have to live for money. I'm living for eternity. I don't have to live for fame. Let God have all the fame. He deserves all the glory. Right? I can live for that promise of eternity with God. Paul's writing about this, and he's connecting, using the term first fruits, to that ancient practice. Many of you are going to remember that, aren't you, from this day forward. So that was the truth. Here's the question associated with it. Do you believe? That's the question I have to ask you today. I have to ask you that. <coughs> because in order to have this promise, here's what he said. He's coming back for those who are Christ. Christ. That means that everybody that wears the necklace and everybody that buys the t-shirt and everybody that comes in on Easter Sunday does not necessarily mean that they're Christ. Does that make sense to you today? And, you know, I know this year is a year that we both celebrated and we mourned the passing of Billy Graham, perhaps the world's greatest evangelist who would lead more people to Jesus perhaps than any other man in human history or certainly in the modern era. But let me say this to you today. If Billy were here today, there is nothing more that he could do than what's been done in this house. I've told you. I presented it to you. I presented it to comfort those who already believe, to strengthen your faith, let you walk out of here with that, revel uh, that revelation fresh in your life once again. But maybe there are those among us who don't believe. There's been a veil on your heart. Let me tell you, lift that veil today. Because not by the natural eye, but by the eye of faith, you must see Jesus. That's who the hope of resurrection belongs to, those who are Christ. Christ the firstfruits, and then those who are his at his return. Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed.